Executive Breakthroughs Podcast with your host, Jason Troy, executive coach and best-selling author. Get game-changing strategies and tactics from the world's most successful executives and entrepreneurs about how they build and grow eight, nine, and 10-figure businesses, hire, manage, and develop A-level talent, create a culture to skyrocket success, build an extraordinary network out of influencers, and so much more. Stay tuned for mistakes you can skip and strategies you can steal, because stealing pens and post-it notes is for amateurs. It's time for another massive breakthrough, Executive Breakthroughs with Jason Troy. Hello and welcome to another episode of Executive Breakthroughs. I have a fantastic guest today, Patrick Milampi. He's a COO and co-founder of 128 Technology and is one of the hottest startups in Boston. And before that, he sold the company Acme Packet to Oracle for $2.1 billion. He's got 35 patents in telecom and he has got a lot of experience to talk about pivoting in his companies, leadership, hiring, and just a lot of things that you can learn and insights you can implement into your career and business. So let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Executive Breakthroughs. And I have a fantastic guest here today, Patrick at 128 Technology, and he's a COO. And so we're going to be working and talking a lot about questions and answers that you are going to love to hear and a lot of insight. So welcome to the show today. Well, thank you very much. So I want to find out a little bit, where did you grow up, a little bit of your background? You know, I heard, I read that you grew up in Pittsburgh, and so why don't you just tell us a little bit about family? And yeah, I was raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, in a rural area. With, okay. Uh, eight, eight brothers and sisters, so it was a big family. Wow. You learned to uh, share and oh, yeah. communicate and oh, have yeah. to get along. And, of course. And what child were you out of the eight? Uh, third. Okay. Third. Third from the oldest. Third from the oldest. I wonder what that says. I don't know. Usually there's youngest and oldest, I know, but I don't know in the middle. I'm just in the middle. Yeah. Okay. So you figure out how to get along. And your dad was an engineer too? He was. My dad was an engineer, uh, worked at General Motors, and then, of course, got into the steel industry, and that's how we were. We moved to Pittsburgh when I was very small. Very small. Yeah. So was your dad like a driving force for you growing up or someone that you looked up to, or was he just... Of course he was. Yeah. yeah, yeah, of course. Is that and that sounds like that's led you on the path to going down the path of where you're on now, getting really interested in technology and engineering. Although back then, I I heard that it wasn't just the technology part of it, but just more of the engineering, and you kind of fell into that later on. Well, you know, when when I was younger and going to school, I was good at math, and um, everybody said, "Well, if you're good at math, you should be an engineer." So I I uh, didn't know much about engineering, but I did okay at school. I wasn't a great student, but I did okay. okay. Yeah. And then what was your first job outside of? I worked at the Timken Roller Bearing Company in uh, Columbus, Ohio. They, um, I was a, uh, uh, what do they call it, a systems engineer there, okay. trying to work on business methods and make things more efficient. And it was before computers really had, personal computers had really been a part of um how corporations uh, made themselves efficient. It was just before they were coming in. So how did you get into technology then from there? Was it the next job that you had or was it there? Well, I, I did I did do some programming in college, Fortran okay. and punch cards and Got a little it. bit of TTY stuff, but I didn't take any um, I didn't I didn't take any uh, 
computer science classes. That okay. didn't really exist at, at the University of Pittsburgh. So when I went to the Timken company, they had um, uh, you know some mainframe computers, and they still had some punch cards, um, tabulators, and all that. And uh, they brought in some uh, IBM PCs. They were fresh, okay. brand new. And then and wow. they said, hey, college boy, come over here. Uh, you do this, right? So they just sort of asked me to do it because I was young. And you just figured that out on your own, or how? Yeah, you... there wasn't much. There wasn't much on those computers in those days. Um, okay. They had a ten megabyte hard drive. Yeah, oh that's wow! One, yeah, that's, that's all sad. they had. Yeah. That's not much. No. So you just started using them in the business and figured out how to like the applications yeah, we, for them. Did they? Did we did some them? projects, um, inventory projects, and we did some. Uh, they did a lot of computations there manually, and we replaced them with um, programs where you could, okay. you know, that kind of thing. And that was, is that kind of the first time and you got really motivated to be in technology by sort of working on? Yes, yes. I learned everything by working. Yeah, I didn't learn much in college. I mean, I, I got, you know. You had a taste of it. As, as, in, in relation to technology, high technology. Did you, at this point, did you have any like strong mentors or people that were in your life that were driving you, or do you have anyone that? I mean, the guy that I worked for at the Tim King Company was also very interested in it. He, uh, he, he was very helpful. Um, he wanted to uh, start a business. He didn't when I was there, but he wanted to. Okay. Um, so what had you? When did you leave there, and what led you to kind of on your next path? Yeah, I came to Boston on, uh, I was living in Columbus, Ohio at the time, and I came to Boston uh, on vacation. I had just learned a language called C, programming language, and I, I learned it on my own um, uh, at night. And um, when I came to, to Boston, I got the Sunday Globe and I opened it up, and it's hard for people to imagine this before the internet, but there were easily... Uh, 300 pages of help wanted ads for C Unix programmers in wow. the late 80s. Um, and I said, wow, you know, this is great. And it's like, I, I just went back to uh, the Timken Company. I resigned and I moved here and started. Uh, that fast. You were just like, I'm moving to Boston. Yes. Yeah. I had a relative here that let me stay with them for a while. Okay. So it helped out. Yeah. So what was that next job? What did you end up taking? And Well, oddly, um, I, I was looking at some really good high tech jobs, but I wanted to be in the city because I've you know never lived in the city. So I actually took a job doing um, systems engineering at the Harvard Community Health Plan, which was a, at the time was uh, somewhat small and very very fast growing. So it was uh, it was in, in its own way it was the most compared to the Timken Company. It was very entrepreneurial, very fast growing. Um, so I was I was my first experience with um, companies that were growing fast. So that was kind of your entrepreneurial foray, I guess, working in that. What kind of led you down more of the path to yeah. starting your own thing? Like what kind of so set I, of events? Yep. So I continued to work on projects at for about two or three years at the Harvard Community Health Plan. Finished my MBA, and. Um, you know the the high tech community in Boston was really starting to to um, really get going, and um, I uh, we I became interested in voicemail um, for uh, at, while I was working at the Harvard Community Health Plan. We were looking at systems from Converse network systems, and um, we were we were sizing them and pricing them and thinking about efficiencies and. 
And in the meantime, I found out that there was a company here called Boston Technology um, that was doing the making voicemail, and they had five engineers or at the time, and uh, they actually hired me, and um, I was the fifth engineer, actually. And that company was just becoming, uh, just getting going. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. So you worked there for a while, and you, you did, and you made some obviously some good connections, and you started to. Well, that's where I met Andy Ori, who's okay. uh, been my one of my. You know, he and I have started a couple of businesses, or he did uh, the first one, and then I we started Acme Packet together, and um, that's where I met him. I also met um, Bob Penfield, another engineer here, and Peter Comerford, and. The company was um, uh, run by younger people. They were younger than me that actually started the business, and um, they were uh, they believed that business into being like it. It, it they were just incredible, um, and they were great to watch, um, and it was fun. And they actually gave you a lot of freedom. It sounds like. Well, they worked really hard. These guys would sleep in their on the floor in their office. They were crazy, and they worked really, really wow. hard. And um, but very, very inefficiently as well. <laughs> and uh, you know, they. But it was fun. It was fun. I have to say, it was a, it was a very good job. And most people, when when I left there, they had grown quite a bit. They had, I don't know, four or five hundred employees by the time I left, and um, which was about three years later. And um, when I left, it was because I was going to start a, be part of uh, an entrepreneurial company. So that, what did you take away from that experience? That was, was there any like big learning things that you took away from working? You know, they at Boston Tech they um, they had a culture. That they didn't always. Uh, they weren't a hundred percent. They didn't. Like they, they believed what they were doing so much, it it wasn't real. Like they believed uh, they were gonna, they they believed in things that weren't quite real. And I don't want to say anything disparagingly about Got the it. company. So, um, you know, but they would do things like round up every chance they could. Um, and I felt like they didn't need to do that. I felt like the the company and the products were were good enough, and they didn't need to do that. Got it. Yeah. So you left there, and then what? What did you do? What was the next step on the entrepreneurial well, journey? Well, Andy Ori had already started a company called Priority Call Management, and I was uh, I was helping him as a friend and as a uh, consultant. I worked for beer or something. It was, and uh, he um, had started the company on a shoestring and uh, was very excited and very. As if you ever met our CEO, he's very. Um, very, very a fantastic leader. So he was. He he urged me to consider taking a job with him, and um, I really, I was just newly married and I had a mortgage and I, I just didn't really feel like it made sense. And he said, "Well, you know, you should, you, you should go and talk to your boss and see and and, and see what he says anyway." Um, he thought that, um, and he was wise because I went and I talked to my boss. His name was Bill Claybrook, and he said. He said, you'd be a fool not to go and to try and start that company. And this is the guy I worked for who really needed me to, to stay and do my job. He was t urging me to go. And I was like, wow. And he said, I'll tell you what, I'll take the risk away. You go and work with Andy. And if he runs out of money, he had three or four months of money in the bank is all he had to run the business. He said, if it doesn't work out, I'll hire you back. So why do you think he did that? Because I think he was... Um, That's a unique thing. I mean, I've, I've had a one yeah. person... 
who did that for me, but that's you have a that's a you, it tells you you have a unique relationship with that person. Well, I mean, we were he, he liked me and I liked him, and he felt like um, you know he it was something that I would regret if I didn't do it, and he took away the reason why I wouldn't do it, and so that was good. That was nice of him. So then you jumped at the opportunity and went yep. into it, and how, how did it? How did I mean? Obviously, it's worked out well over time. Well, that I mean that business, you learn a lot about what not to do by making mistakes. And that business yes. had um, wasn't really a good business in the beginning. We didn't have we didn't pick the right market. Um, the technology was difficult and expensive, and um, you know so we we struggled um, for a, at least a year and a half. Um, Maybe going on too, and then we found our way. Yeah, how did you find your way? Well, we, as, as usual, our principal initial idea. A lot of startups uh, wasn't going to work, and so then you had to pivot or find some other, some other way out or quit. Right? Just yes. uh, say uncle. And uh, what we did was we. Um, it, it's 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 classic, but we had borrowed money from a lot of people uh, in the form of. Uh, advances of equipment. And one of the guys that advanced us a bunch of equipment, his name was Bob Mandana, and he had given us or advanced us um, equipment that we probably couldn't pay for. He didn't want to see us not pay for it, right? That's not what he wanted. So he was very interested in us also pivoting and finding a new, new, new. And he uh, connected us with some people um, that wanted to uh, do a a particular feature called international calling card callback systems or whatever, which wasn't what we were making, but we um, was close. We, we figured with you know a month of work or two we could could get it working, and so that's what we did. And um, actually, we started to make decent money for the first time shortly thereafter. And he funneled business to us, and we were able to pay our bills, and he was happier. He's exactly. and then from there. So you had this business, but it wasn't the business that you wanted to. So how did you? Well, we pivoted one more time into um, uh, prepaid cellular systems, and we did well, much better. Grew the business to. Uh, Andy would remember exactly their earnings and, and revenue growth, but it was a sizable business, and we sold it um, to LHS Group for roughly around 180 million dollars. And um, it was a good thing we sold it because um, that was a real tough business, and, and we never wanted to do that again. You know that that was a tough business, and uh, multiple pivots, um, complex um, sort of customer uh, problems, and um, not not problems, but you know it was difficult. It was a hard business for the dollars you earned. It was hard work. We were actually writing software and putting it on top of other people's hardware, and the people that sold the hardware were making all the money, and they and the people that were buying the solution valued the hardware, not the software. Okay. That's the way it was, and we felt like, um, you know, we were adding most of the value but getting uh, not getting a lot of credit. So we decided never again would we be a systems integrator slash. Um, software that, you, that, that remarkets other people's hardware. We said we weren't going to do that again.
Okay, so you sold the business, and did you all have to work in the business? Is when you a lot of times they, you know, people yeah, require I, I, you to do that at the next. They didn't require it, but I stayed on for about a year, year and okay. a half. Um, did really, Andy too, or did? You... Uh, no, he he left uh, probably in about three months or so. Okay, uh, but I stayed on and really wanted to make it work. And then the company that bought us sold themselves, uh, and when that happened. Um, you know, all of the options we had vested right away, and um, no one really believed that this company was was well run at that point, and so everyone was starting to look for the doors, and um, so I decided to, to leave and start Acme Packet. I called Andy, and he was very interested in, in helping me out, and we, we got it going. Okay, so this time, you actually were leading... Leading the way on this business. That's yeah. Interesting. Not this one, but that was that, that, that one. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I had the idea, and um, he was all for it. And um, we tried to, um, you know, we, we had a couple of um, get-togethers with potential investors. Everybody was excited. So uh, that business, we started it. Uh, it's hard to believe it, but it was in 1999. We were f forming the business, and it was before, you know, the... NASDAQ crashed from 5,000, roughly yes. where it is now, and before the airplanes hit the buildings and everything. And it was a pretty pretty crazy time before the everyone was throwing money around willy-nilly. Yes. So um, it was pretty crazy. So talk about working with another founder, because a lot of times when you start up companies go south or things don't work, it's that people don't have a way to compromise, arguments come up, divisions happened. Yeah. It's obvious that since you two have been working together for a long time in a lot of different scenarios that you found a way to communicate, work together, find solutions, get on the same page. Like, you know, yeah. how you have how have you done that? Like what what did you what needed to happen in order to I mean, Andy is a great and easy person to work with, and um, I think uh, we both just work together well. I guess that's it. He has different strengths than I do, and um, we both respect each other. We've been getting, we've been working together for a very long time. When we started Acme Packet, we went to Men, uh, uh, Menlo Park uh, okay. Ventures to raise money. And we only went in there as a courtesy call because we didn't have a business plan pulled together. We just popped in to say hello and tell them we we're starting a business and we would, you know, we're going to come back in three, four months after we get our ducks, line, ducks in a row and we're going to um, talk to you about raising money. And they wouldn't let us leave the, the, that day without accepting an offer to invest. And we didn't even have a plan. And Later on, when we were asking them, well, why would you do that? You know, why, why? And they said that, um, that the reason why businesses fail more than not is um, because people don't get along. And he said, you guys get along, and we invested in your last company. They were an investor in the, okay. the priority call management. So uh, they said, we uh, really, really like you guys. We think you guys are great. You learned a lot in your last business. Your next business is going to be better. We don't even care what you do. We're in, you know, because the quality of the people and the integrity that we had. So they, they were in, just without even really hearing the idea. Um, and they made that judgment call based on how well we got along and how we uh, created teams. So what did you learn as you started Acme Packet from the working with Andy? Like, What were some big lessons that you learned that you put into that business? 
Well, I mean, so we, we chose, we didn't really um, choose a great market um, or even have a, a great idea in the first business. It, we did okay because we executed well, uh, but the market was small. It wasn't easy to understand. The product space um, changed, and we were lucky to sell the business when we did. With that, with that we pack it, we wanted to pick a bigger market. We wanted to look at the major trends and make sure we had a good thesis for a long-term value proposition. And so we were more thoughtful about that. And you know, if you looked at our original sort of des description of what we were going to do, and then if you look at the company when it was going public uh, five years later, we hadn't changed much. We didn't have to pivot once. So the good news was we at least made the right choice. And um, of course, things happened that we didn't anticipate that resulted in selling the business to Oracle. But you know, it was a great 13-year run. It was a great business. Uh, we made a lot of money. We, we sold billions of dollars of the product. Um, so. I, th I think that we chose better the market and and um, did a much better job. Why did you end up selling the business? What what led to you? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. We it was hard to grow the business. We uh, the market for our product was six hundred million, and we had three hundred million or three hundred and ten million or something. So we had fifty to fifty five percent of the market, and there was probably forty competitors. Probably only three that were credible. Um, but when you think about it, it's pretty hard to take any market share when you have that big of yeah. a... And uh, so that was one reason. I, th I think fundamentally, um, a second reason was that the value of voice calls, it uh, doesn't matter where they are in the world, was plummeting. Just long distance, uh, people didn't stop paying for it. Um, it was give, given away free by everybody. and. Uh, people also stopped making phone calls. Phone calls, fax calls, phone calls, all kinds of calls. People stopped making them as much. They texted or they emailed. They found other ways to communicate. And so what was happening is, is the market value of voice was declining. So we, our product, which was probably uh, in 90% of the world's networks, was um, facilitating voice going between IP networks. And we just decided that gosh, with voice declining, there's going to be less money for the business case, therefore less dollars to spend, and the $600 million market isn't growing. And so uh, without any market growth, there's no chance we were going to get to grow our business. And having, you know, when you, when you try to manage a business that isn't growing, it's hard because everybody wants a raise, you know, everybody wants to hire more people, and yep. you, 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 not only do you have to say no, you actually have to say you have to do more with less uh, if the business isn't growing. And that's a different kind of uh, leadership than starting businesses and, and, and growing them when they can grow, you know, so. What advice would you give people on exiting the business and selling? Because obviously you've done this several times, yeah. and you know, what, what, what things have you learned that has been helpful um, when you go down that path? I almost think you have an obligation to your customers and to your employees and to your investors to find a home for a business that you can't grow. Because businesses have a life cycle and, you know, a business that isn't growing um, as a stand, that isn't growing that's mid-size or small, that's in a standalone environment, isn't going to thrive. 
I mean, it's just not a good place for people that work there because they won't have career paths. It's not a good place to try to convince investors that you're going to be there paying dividends or whatever it is. It's just not good. You, you need to, you know, when a, the life cycle of these small businesses um, ultimately is to be acquired when they can't when they can't sustain growth. And so you just got to face into it and say, all right, now it's time. Um, and move on. Move on. So how, talk about your customer relationships that you build with some of your customers. Because obviously if you gain that much of a market share, I mean, of course, you've got great technology and services. But what there's obviously got to be some other stuff in how you're building the relationship with these customers that separate yourself out from the other people that were in yeah. your industry and probably just in general technology to get that much of a market share in any market. We did. We, we had a very good reputation, and I think um, for a couple of reasons. I think one is, you know, that the product worked, and uh, that that's important. Um, you know, we, we ran that business for 13 years, and we never really got dragged into any sort of legal issues around the product functionality not working or meeting requirements or contracts. So we ran a, a, good, a good business. It was clean. I think that Another reason why people had such loyalty to us is that that whole market um, for voice over IP had a lot of really big players in it. Cisco, Avaya, Ericsson, Alcatel, you know, Nortel. I mean, over the years, yep. there was giant companies. And, and there were some small companies in the business, Sonus, uh, Acme Packet, and a few others that had really credible products and people just loved the small businesses. It was almost a, an advantage for us. Um, we could be responsive. We didn't have to bring out, you know, three inch thick contracts every time you wanted to have a discussion. Um, so people liked that about us. And I think for us, we were the last um, component that went into these solutions. and. We were in the middle of the solution, and people had problems, and they'd come to us and say, gee, this doesn't work, can you fix it? And they knew that no one else would fix it without being paid. And we frequently did fix it. And um, so we had, people liked us, and... And you saw their problem. You saw yeah. that they were in pain. Yeah. It's kind of like Apple today. If I call Apple about something, they're helping me, and they're gonna do whatever they can, even if the problem's not theirs. Right. And that makes me want to be more of a loyal user because I know that exactly. if something happens, I can call them and they'll solve the problem. They won't sit there and say, it's going to cost you $59 to fix this. They'll just stay on the phone and help me solve it. Exactly. You, you know? might say that it was the support and systems engineering and handholding and but problem solving that we did that built it. But it's it. a promise yeah. that you kept to people, too. Yep. You said yep. what you were going to do. You built it. You executed on it. Yep. And then you know, you supported them around the edges and things that they needed to do. So that's... These programs were very successful at, at these companies. All of our customers at Acme Packet, the people that ran those programs did very well. I mean, they, they, had, they met all their goals. They, they hit their the mark on in terms of quality, in terms of uh, return on investment. So they all did well. And so they, they had a good feeling about, about us. So you sold the business. Mm -hmm. What happened before? And then eventually you got here. So how did that iteration go? How did that path go from... Selling? Yeah, after we sold the business, Andy uh, left. There's no real place at Oracle for a CEO. So he, no. he left fairly quickly. Um, and by the way, Oracle treated us really well. Great company. Uh, you know, everyone talks about how bad they are. I think they're actually pretty 
pretty good. Well, obviously, I, they did grow the business. They have to be otherwise, and, and continue forward and iterate it and integrate all these other businesses. And I mean, we tried to buy a couple of small companies at Acme Packet. Well, we did buy three or four companies at Acme Packet, and it, you know, the way Oracle buys companies is amazing. Really well done. I learned an awful lot by watching. What did, what did they do well that other people are not? Because I love the. Yeah, People probably want to would know like well what's kind of what's their secret or yeah I, I they have this rip the bandaid approach that is phenomenal and it's what's that well when they buy you there's always kind of integration issues uh, multiple systems problems with old old ways of doing business that they don't want you to do and rather than do a two year project to uh, build all the new systems, run them in parallel, and then cut over. They literally will just say, "Do it, just do it." And so people will say, "Like for I'll just give you an example." So um, we were using Salesforce.com at Acme Packet, which is an arch competitor of yes. Oracle. So we they buy us and they say, "Okay, so you have to get off of that." You know, and we were assuming that they'd give us two or three years to to migrate off and or find a way to transfer all the data. And they said, we're not going to transfer any of the data. We're just going to shut it down. You guys have to type it all back in. And so all the sales guys said, well, that means we're going to stop selling because we have to go and type stuff in. And they said, that's okay. And literally the sales uh, ground to a halt. No sales were being made. The business ground to a halt for about six or eight weeks while everyone just got onto the new systems. And then we were up and running. And they were willing to, uh, they were smart. Because um, they also had very reasonable quotas for the sales guys. They knew that they were going to hurt us. They knew that they knew that was going to happen because they've done it so many times. And they, they between reasonable quotas and between um, uh, fair treatment of everybody, I think 85, 90% of the people felt like they got treated very fairly. Um, they were able to rip the Band-Aid and get the business converted to their way of running. A lot quicker. Than very quickly. Oh, yeah, very quickly. Which in the ROI, I guess they thought would, you know, instead of two, three years of doing it, yes, you're not productive for eight weeks, but then we don't have to sit there for a couple of years and work with the other system. Well, they buy the 40 companies a year. I mean, how could you ever not? And yeah, so they're very good so at it. So how culturally did they do anything that got people integrated better on the culture side that you saw? Or is it more just this process of getting everything integrated? I think their culture, if they didn't really... Tell, they don't tell you what their culture is or they don't describe it. But I, if I had to guess, everybody that introduces themselves at Oracle says by which acquisition they joined Oracle. Oh, I came in and with this company or I came in with this company. And maybe it's because we were in uh, not in their core sort of database business. We were in their peripheries. But it seemed to be the culture of the company was, um, you know, it was about being acquired and joining up and, you know, Everyone said, if you stay here three years, you will stay forever. And I think that's true. I think that um, they treat people fair. They, they, uh, and, you know, it, it's, a, it's a comfortable place to work. So why did you end up leaving? Because obviously yeah. you left. And yeah, well, you know, um, I did leave, and, and, and they uh, were treating me very well. So it, it needed to be a, a good reason to leave. Now, I made a lot of money at Acme Packet, so I wasn't really... I uh, didn't need to work, um, but I wanted to do something. I, I was too young to retire, so um, you know, I, I um, these f five other founders in here that are engineers, 
uh, didn't worked really hard at Etme Packet, but weren't independently wealthy. And they were constantly trying to start a business, seeking my my guidance. And they had terrible ideas, um, and they just didn't think things through. And we would help them by introducing them to some venture people and help them by getting meetings with potential customers to discuss their ideas. And they were just doing a really horrible job. And I thought, well, I need to help them out. So, um, and I, I did, uh, you know, we did come up with the idea for what we Why have. Why did you feel like you needed to help them out? Because they're good guys. And besides, I like, what am I going to do? I had to do something. I had to work. So we had a couple meetings and we said, we agreed that we wanted to start a business and, um, and that we then had to set about finding a market that we wanted okay. to participate in, right? So then what did you all end up doing? Was it this business here? Yeah. Okay. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, pivot right into here. Yeah. And then Andy joined up? or he? Yeah, the, the, there were seven founders. Six of us sort of agreed to start the business, and then the six voted, let's go see if Andy wants to uh, participate. And uh, we decided we wanted to have him as well. So he was the last one in. Um, but I think it was by unanimous. Um, you know, we looked at each other and said, we need Andy. So To bring the band all back together in a way. Yeah, and I think so. Um, I think so, yeah. And so what, 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 what's your philosophy? Because obviously, you know, you've had a lot of different things you've been doing. Like, what's like one core philosophy that you really hold up high? I think you always have to do the right thing, uh, not just by, you know, the investors, because obviously you have to do the right by them, but right. by your employees and by your customers, you just do the right thing. You always treat people right. Um, you know, if, a, if you really screwed up at a customer, you know, give them their money back, you know. Um, <laughs> you know, whether you're right or wrong, it doesn't matter. If they're not happy, they're not using the product, just do the right thing. That, that's really what we try to do. Um, and we always ask ourselves, is that the right thing to do? And we, then we try to do it. Um, sometimes it's, it's um, you know, hard, but that's what we Where do. does that come from, what philosophy, doing the right thing? Is it something you grew up with that you learned then, or is it just something that you just... I don't know, really. I know, I know we saw a lot of shenanigans in the late 90s and early 2000 at other companies, and maybe it's a fallout of that. Um, you know, it's just what it's what we've always done, and um, and it isn't just me or Andy. It's it, it it's all with the CFOs we've had. We we just always tried to do the right thing. What what separates a great leader from a good leader, from your perspective? Wow, uh, I read that as one of your pre questions, and I I was trying to think about a good answer. Because um, I know people there are me. You know, watching and listening to this, they really want to know how do I take my leadership to the next level? And they may be very successful now, but people are always looking yeah. at new ideas and nuances and things because often, you know, it's a one or two degree change in what you're doing can give you massive lift. I think you're right. I think Andy, our CEO, is a great leader. I think he um, has, I mean, he. he you know, when I, we hired, I'll give you an example of a great leader. So when you hire people, um, really key people, you expect them, because they're leaders and they have leadership experience, you, one would expect that they would be able to bring lots of people with them, followers, if you will, people that they could, yep. could convince to come follow them and people that would uh, want to follow them. And um, invariably, that's the true test of how 
strong a leader is. When you hire, like you can use a retained search and bring in a, a top leader and pay him a lot of money, but if he doesn't have a, 20 people that, he, that love him and want to be with him, yes. then you've hired the wrong guy. And time and time again, that's happened. We hired a, two very senior people at Acme Packet. I'm not to say I'm not going to go into too much detail because no, yeah, I don't yeah. want to criticize them. But one of them came on board and brought literally 20 people that we didn't know we needed. As I mean, and spent huge amounts of money and built a great organization. And these people loved her, and they followed her from multiple jobs. And um, we also hired someone to come in and run a major. A mean bigger group of engineers and um, very senior level job and he didn't bring anybody in and so he didn't know anybody when we said hey we're looking to hire people who do you know well I, you know nobody so I, I think one was a great leader and the other one was a good manager and I think that you know that that's the difference to me What's your philosophy on hiring now? Because obviously you've been in a lot of different companies and a lot of different organizations. Like, how do when you hire people? Like, what what do you ask them? How do you think about these hires? Like, what goes through your head? Like today, like if someone were going to come in for some position, like how do you think through the hiring process and how has that evolved and changed yeah. um, over time? Well, that's a very, very good question because we, we argue about that a lot internally here. Um, we've done the, this company. We've done the best hiring we've ever done. Um, we made the less, the, the least mistakes, and have the greatest and best teams across the board. Um, we're we're now using and applying tests with all of our engineers and finding that to be very helpful. I mean, it's a three-hour test, so if you want to work here, you've got to take a three-hour test, and that seems kind of you know. Right away, most people say, "Forget it." You know, I have kids. I got a wife. I, I can't spare really? three hours. Yeah, it's some, it, it, it rules out people that don't. That's an interesting thing. That yeah. one little test. It's well, it's a three-hour test. Well, it's three hours, but three hours in, in a career that you're going to spend time with seems pretty minimal. It's just interesting to see that the bar for someone is that low that they're not even willing to take a test. Well, the test is also illuminating in a way because they can pick the language they want to use. They can um, they take the test and then. It gives us something to dialogue with them as though it was real work. We get a chance to say, well, why did you do it this way? Or, you know, yes. just as though we were working. And, and, and that really helps give us a real a way to sort of role play what it would be like to work with this person. And um, so the combination of people that won't take the test and the improved uh, interview process, we've hired a very strong engineering team. Um, and I think that's the hardest function to hire properly. Um, I think it really is hard. So the role playing actually sounds really interesting because then you're really able to see what, what the makeup is the person, right? Not just how they're solving the problem, but how they think, how they communicate, exactly. how they collaborate, how they'd solve a problem. Exactly. I mean, you can probably get into some people's values, morals, ethics, and everything else if they line up with sort of your thing of doing the right thing or would they skip corners or what they exactly. want to do. No, that's exactly right. And, um, you know, the, the test itself is very hard and almost no one does well on it. Um, do you care as much how well they do on the test or how they... Uh, how they answer questions on, or collaborate or talk to you through the situation? Or I what's... think the, the latter is the key. But if they don't do well on the test, it's unlikely. If they do really badly on the test, okay. it's unlikely that right. we would even waste time. Got it. How do you view, you know, at this point in your career, risk-taking? 
Like, how do you see? There's the second, the other side of risk taking is what if you didn't do something, right? And um, yes, I mean that's the, it, it's balance. It's between you know people think, oh wow, you're an entrepreneurial risk taker. I don't think any of us are that are here. I mean, the, I remember there was a young guy that was trying to start a business that worked for me at Oracle, and he said, um, gosh, he just isn't sure about it. And I said, well, he's trying to talk me into investing in his business. And I said, well, why would I invest in your business if you won't quit your job and do it? Like, if you're that unsure, yep. you know, why would I do it? And he goes, well, geez, you know. So I asked him, I said, how much money do you have? In the, and could you, how long could you last without a paycheck? He said, I could probably go six months. And I said, well, why don't you just go do this business and you're either going to be successful or you're not. And he goes, that's true. And, and, and I said, what's the worst that could happen? He said, well, I could fail. I said, what would happen then? I have to get a job. I said, you'd probably have no trouble getting a job, right? And he was pretty confident that because he was a very senior guy, lots of good experience that he could get a job. I said, so really you have the, the capital to take a chance. And if you won't take a chance on yourself, why would anyone invest in you? And so I said, you know, no one, no one will invest in you if you don't do it yourself. And uh, I think that's true. A lot of people run around trying to raise money, but still have a job. And you're like, well, gosh, you know, you're either all in or you're not. Um, and the risk of not doing it and staying at, in his case, staying at Oracle would have been that he would have been miserable, you know, or not happy. And um, so he took the job. He did, I mean, he did quit and he did go start the company. He had trouble raising money, um, ran the business for a year and a half, sold it, probably broke even in terms of what he would have made had he stayed at Oracle. And now he's got a really good job at a different company that's a startup. He's not, he realized that he's not an entrepreneur himself. He realized that. Okay. But now he's at another small company and he's doing quite well. You know, last question for you is when you look at other entrepreneurs, what do you think is the makeup of the people that end up being successful and those that don't. And I know it's a really yeah, yeah. broad generalization, no, okay. but yeah. I mean, obviously you've seen a lot of people in a lot of industries and spoken to people and there has to be some things in your head that you see that really jump out. Well, in our sector, in our high tech sector, I don't know anything about biotech or anything yeah. like that, but in, in our sector, people, the people that focus on the science, um, I think tend to fail more than the people that focus on, you know, the markets. And, um, you know, in California, that's where everybody does all the uh, consumer stuff. But over here in the Boston area, we're more of a, of, a, of a commercial, you know, selling to enterprises startup area. There's you know, all the companies around here. That's kind of what we do. And, and, and you know, I, I think it's actually really um, uh, quite interesting because the companies and the people that start businesses uh, trying to take a patent or take a technical idea and say it's better, don't do well. The companies that really understand markets and really understand the customers and, and where products and technology, how they impact customers, those guys. So that sounds like the better. psychology and emotions as well as, you know, I mean, it's and the market itself, I mean, may fit into that as well with the people? Yeah, I think so. I think engineers t tend to make lousy, engineers or tend to make lousy entrepreneurs in general because they focus on, they think it's logical and it's not. And um, they also focus on technology instead of really um, what, the, what the true value proposition 
proposition is to the rational buyer. A consumer is not a rational buyer, but a business is. And um, so, and solving the pain. Yeah. And the more the pain, That's right. the more they have to buy it. Yeah. You get on with that. So. Well, thanks a lot today for joining us on Executive Breakthroughs. It was fantastic to have you on. You shared a lot of great insights and uh, all these wonderful things about how to build a company, be successful in the culture and hiring. So thanks a lot for uh, being on well, Thank you very much. Appreciate it.